Morning, church. If you're a guest with us, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. We're in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, Old Testament book, chapter 37. Turn with me there in your copy of the scripture so that you can follow along. I'm going to strongly encourage you to underline a couple phrases as we go. Before we jump into Isaiah 37, I have uh, just want to set the stage historically, contextually, and from the outset, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of history here, so we'll do our best to get our arms around it. Isaiah chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39 tell the story of the reign of Judah's King Hezekiah. <clears throat> Judah was the southern portion of a divided Israel. The blue portion of the map on the screen is the northern kingdom, which is referred to often just simply as Israel, and Samaria was its capital. Hezekiah is, is the ruler of the southern kingdom uh, of Judah, which had Jerusalem as its capital. Hezekiah ruled from 727 BC, and I know that we have to frame our minds, it's 2,700 years ago, 727 BC to 698, which is 29 years he was on the throne. And Isaiah was a prophet who served Hezekiah. In fact, Hezekiah, Isaiah served not only Hezekiah, but other kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah ministered in the capital city of Jerusalem. In fact, Isaiah served Hezekiah's father who was named Ahaz. We got, our, we got our history right? It's the prophet Isaiah serving King Hezekiah as well as his dad Ahaz. You may remember some of Isaiah's story, uh, Ahaz's story, dad, uh, Ahaz's story from previous sermons. He was the king that refused, and fairly famously, refused not to trust in God's care. Instead, he, he chose to ally himself with a foreign power named Assyria. Uh, Ahaz, Hezekiah's dad, was afraid that Judah was going to be invaded by some, some foreign nations. And instead of relying on God, as he had been encouraged to do by Isaiah, he turned to Assyria and said, would you help me? He said, no thanks to Isaiah, no thanks to God. In my political astuteness, I'm going to ally myself with Assyria. It was at that time that Isaiah uh, said, okay, Ahaz, if you're not going to rely upon God, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a sign of a, of a little baby who'd be born in Bethlehem, and that sign was going to come some 700 years in the future, but no less, he still prophesied that Jesus would, would be born. Well, as it turns out, the apple did fall far from the tree, and Hezekiah was surprisingly nothing like his dad Ahaz. Instead, he's described in Scripture as a good king, a, a king that trusted in the Lord. And interestingly, and as a complete aside, but an aside that I find fairly fascinating, archaeologists have recently found, they've unearthed a seal with an inscription about King Hezekiah. I love this stuff. This picture is a picture of a seal which was published in the Washington Post in 2015. The small seal, it only measures about a half inch. It's not large at all. 
was found in on the Temple Mount in what was the ancient equivalent of a trash heap. It somehow got thrown out with the garbage, but it's, it's a seal that would have been worn on a, a ring or it would have been placed at the end of a stylist and used to mark uh, important documents from King Hezekiah's court. The seal was most likely a seal for papyrus documents, and so it's a clay seal, and what would happen is the seal, it would have been on a ring or at the end of a stylus, a small scepter, and when an important document was going to be sealed, they would have dipped this clay seal in wax and then pressed it on the document, sealing the document. It's the, the equivalent of uh, classified documents in the ancient world. Don't open this, in other words, unless you have the king's approval. So what does the seal say? Well, it's got this sun with wings on it, which is a symbol in the ancient world of royalty. And then at the top, it says, belonging to Hezekiah, right? Not earth-shaking. Belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. Why does this matter? Well, looking at ancient maps of a divided Israel, looking at archaeological findings of this nature, they remind us that these biblical stories are about real kings. They're about real cities, real nations, with real citizens who are called to trust in God. Albeit, that was 2,700 years ago, but they're being called to trust in God, just as we are. In short, we're not the first people to wrestle with difficulties in life. We aren't the first people called to live by faith. And by and large, Hezekiah did just that. He wasn't a perfect king by any stretch, but he was a king described as wanting to honor God. Here's the description of Hezekiah's reign from the book of 2 Kings chapter 18, which offers a parallel commentary to Isaiah's commentary on Hezekiah. There we read in 2 Kings chapter 18, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given to Moses, so he kept the law. He ascended to the throne at about the age of 25 he worked hard to root out idolatry in Judah, tearing down the high places, literally removing idols that, that the people were bowing to. He also repaired God's temple there in Jerusalem, and he restored the festival observances of the Old Testament, like the Passover. All of which these things were aimed at drawing the people back to trusting in God, trusting in Yahweh. Now, it's important for us to understand that Hezekiah's godliness, right? He was a good king. He was unlike his father Ahaz, who didn't trust in the Lord. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. Hezekiah repaired the temple. He called the people back to festival observances. He tore down the high places, tore down the, the idols. Despite all his godliness, he still faced really difficult times. This is important for us to understand. And the nation, Judah, that he oversaw still went through trials despite his godliness. In short, if this morning you're trying your darndest to follow after Christ 
and honor him with your life, and you're enduring, you're facing difficulty, perhaps persecution even, you're not the first. The good king Hezekiah implemented many reforms. He tried his darndest to honor God with his life, and he still faced trials. He was still persecuted. Nations came against Judah, even though he was trying hard to honor God. In fact, just four years into his reign, so he started reigning in 727. In 722, the northern kingdom Israel was invaded by Assyria and fell. And the people of Israel were deported. 722 B.C. And after the Assyrians invaded Israel, they turned their attention, not surprisingly, to Judah, the next nation en route. And they started pressing towards the capital city of Jerusalem. The map on the screen shows Assyria's move south. Hezekiah's father had at one time made an alliance with the Assyrian king, then named Tiglath-Pileser III. Can't make this stuff up. But a new king was in power. His name is Sennacherib. Sennacherib. Sherry, my wife, was in first service. Afterwards, she said, you sure you got that name right? <laughs> Thanks, honey, for listening closely. <laughs> As best I know, Sennacherib. And he's threatening, he conquers uh, uh, Israel, right? He's moving south, and he, he's pressing in on Judah. He's conquering town after town on his way to the capital city of Jerusalem. And it's interesting to consider Hezekiah's position as the Assyrian king Sennacherib comes south. No one in the room this morning has the breadth of responsibility that King Hezekiah had in that he governed an entire nation but we do each have responsibilities, don't we? And we can feel pressure as a result of those responsibilities. We can feel even under attack in much the same way that Hezekiah felt pressure, felt under attack. We can wonder, what's God going to do to protect, to provide, to preserve us? Much like Hezekiah wondered. In fact, according to Scripture, we know that all those who are trusting in Christ, they have an enemy, the devil. And Peter, the apostle, described this enemy as roaming the earth, roaring like a lion, looking for someone to devour. That can be our experience. We can feel under attack. And so while we don't have Hezekiah's responsibility, we can certainly feel pressure from the enemy. We can, as a result, feel overwhelmed, stressed, down, discouraged, afraid, terrified, and because we have family, because we have friends, co-workers, employees, some of us are responsible for others in the marketplace, because we have perhaps public responsibility in some cases, these pressures can feel increased. They can feel multiplied. In other words, it's not just us uh, that we're trying to care for ourselves we can feel the pressure to care for others, like King Hezekiah felt. What are we to do when we feel under attack, discouraged, afraid? So the Assyrian king Sennacherib moves south against the Judean towns, 
And as he did so, and as he's approaching the capital, he first sent his field commander to negotiate a peace. This makes sense. This saves lives. The Assyrian king, Sennacherib, wants to talk some sense into Hezekiah. And so he sends his field commander to meet with Hezekiah's court officials. The proposal on the table is complete surrender. You surrender to Sennacherib, we'll spare your city. Predictably, the talks don't go well. The king's officials, they're not interested, are eager to hear that type of demand. In fact, there is a tense moment in Isaiah 37. You may want to read for yourself later today. It's got some humor to it, although it, I'm sure it didn't come off as humorous. During the talks, Sennacherib's field commander says, uh, meets with Hezekiah's court officials, and he's speaking to them, Sennacherib's field commander, in Hebrew, which is accommodating. So the Assyrian uh, official is speaking to Hezekiah's, the Jewish officials, officials from the king's court, in Hebrew. Well, Hezekiah's court officials say to Sennacherib's field commander, oh, don't speak to us in Hebrew, speak to us in Aramaic. Aramaic is a lesser-known regional dialect that not everybody in Jerusalem would have known. Interestingly, Jesus spoke Aramaic. He says, speak to us in Aramaic. And Sennacherib's field commander says, why in Aramaic? He goes, well, don't speak to us in Hebrew because then the citizens that are listening into our conversation, that are standing on the walls of Jerusalem, they're going to hear us. They're going to hear the dialogue, and we'd like to keep these negotiations between us. Well, Sennacherib's field commander sees the moment of opportunity, and he begins to address directly the citizens of Jerusalem up on the wall. You can imagine how hard it would be to negotiate a peace for your nation when the citizens of the nation are listening in and feeling overwhelmed themselves by the threats. And so Sennacherib's field commander shouts in Hebrew to the people up on the wall. He says, unless you surrender unconditionally to the great king Sennacherib, you're going to have to eat your own excrement and drink your own urine in an attempt to survive the siege that's coming your way. Not a pleasant picture. And uh, talks broke down. <laughs> Hezekiah's court officials leave the talks. They go back into the city. They present the predicament to the king. And he reaches out to Isaiah to see what, if anything, Isaiah, the prophet, God's mouthpiece, had heard from God. What, if anything, is God going to do for his people in this situation, this overwhelming situation, this stressful situation, this situation in which they were under, God's people were under attack? God's people are fearful. What's God going to do? And Isaiah sent comforting words to Hezekiah, telling him not to worry, don't be afraid. God's got this. Nothing's going to happen to this city by Sennacherib. His plans are going to come to nothing, Isaiah says. In fact, Sennacherib's going to go home and he's going to die in his capital city, which happens to be Nineveh in modern Iran. He's going to die there. He's not going to die. Uh, he's not going to come against the city. It's going to go well for you. 
Surprising news for sure for Hezekiah. This is the most powerful king in the world, the most powerful kingdom in the world, standing on the gates outside the walls of Jerusalem, threatening to attack. And Isaiah says, no, God's got this. He will soon leave, and he'll die in his own capital city. Which is exactly what takes place. In a miraculous turn of events, Sennacherib receives word that another foreign power is moving against his nation, which means that he must stop marching against Jerusalem and turn his attention towards this other attack against his nation. Is this making sense? Sennacherib can't invest all his energy in coming against Jerusalem now because he's gotten word from his other commanders that a foreign power is coming against his nation. It's great news for Hezekiah. You can only imagine how relieved Hezekiah was, how how relieved all of Jerusalem must have been. God had apparently turned the enemy away from them. It's a beautiful picture. However, Hezekiah's relief was quickly undermined. It's quite the roller coaster, really, as you make your way through Isaiah 37. You can also read an account of it, a parallel account in 2 Kings 18. Hezekiah's relief is short-lived. And he quickly is distressed again because before Sennacherib leaves Jerusalem, he writes Hezekiah a letter warning him that this isn't the end of the matter. (laughs) It's the famous letter, I'll be back. Here's what Sennacherib wrote to Hezekiah. I'm going to begin. It's Isaiah 37, 10. And if you're an underliner, I, I would underline this. Do not let the God, so he's Sennacherib writing to Hezekiah. Sennacherib, by the way, he's a pagan. He's not a follower of Yahweh. His god is named Nisroch. He's writing to Hezekiah, whose god is Yahweh. He says, do not let the god you depend on deceive you. Man, I would underline that. Do not let the god you depend on deceive you when he says, now Sennacherib knows somehow, some way, that Isaiah had spoken comforting words to Hezekiah. The prophet Isaiah had said, no, Sennacherib will not come against the city. Do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says, Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Don't take comfort in those words. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries destroying them completely, are you going to be delivered? You think it's going to go different for you? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them? And then he's going to recite a whole bunch of nations, throwing all, the, all those nations. He's going to say, look at what we did to all these other nations. We're going to do the same thing to you. Gozan, Haran, Rezfin, the people of Eden who were in Tel Aser. Where's the king of Hamath or the king of Arpad? Where are the kings of Leir, Seph Vavrim, however you say it, Hina, Iva? He's saying, you're going to go, it's going to go for you like it's gone for all these other kings. 
Do not let the God you depend on deceive you. I'll be back. Ever have this type of voice in your life? One that says, do not let the God you depend on deceive you? By that I mean to ask whether you have ever had an influence in your life that discourages you to trust in God's word. Hezekiah, receiving the report from his court officials that Sennacherib's field commander had said, siege is coming your way, you'll not be delivered, you need to surrender. Hezekiah turns to Isaiah and says, what's God going to do? What's the word from God? And Isaiah gives him the word of God. This city is safe. Sennacherib will not come against this city. And Sennacherib writes a letter and said, don't trust those words. Have you ever had anybody in your life that says, don't trust the word of the Lord? Maybe the voice is not that direct, not as direct as Sennacherib's voice was to Hezekiah, but it can still be discouraging even when it's subtle. Maybe today, this morning, last week, this month, you've had some more subtle voices saying, oh, God's word, it's not true. If, you'd follow, if you have followed Jesus for any length of time, then I'm sure you've met with this type of voice to some degree. It's especially common for those who are following the Lord to receive this type of push, pushback from family and friends. I'll give you an example. If you've attended here for a while, you, I've shared before that my father, uh, for most of his life, was not a believer. I came, uh, I was, I first expressed uh, faith in Christ when I was five, then again at 12, and, and when I came, when I, I guess you'd say, when I, when I came fully to the Lord at the age of 12, I, it was a pretty radical, passionate change in my life. And um, I started to tell everybody about Christ and how they needed to follow Christ, and my dad was not following Christ at that time. He, he, uh, he was quite taken aback by the changes that had, had come in me, and I'll never forget him saying to me, Kelly, you are so heavenly minded, you are no earthly good. It was hard. Again, he wasn't a believer at the time, and I was fairly over the top with my passion for Christ. And as a teenager, it stung. It stung to hear his perspective on my life. Every child, after all, wants to hear that their, their dad thinks they're doing, a good, you know, they're doing well, they want their dad's approval. But more than simply wanting to know that my father was pleased with me, his words threw me for a loop theologically, and it took me years to unravel what he said. In just a one-liner, a fairly, you know, just kind of a quip. It stung relationally, but then it threw me theologically. I remember asking myself, am I so, so fanatical in my devotion for Jesus that I'm actually not good to others, for others? Should I calm down a little bit? And for years, I wrestled with whether it's possible, is it, is it, quite, is it possible to be so heavenly minded that you're not any earthly good? Or I wondered, is the truth really that only those who are heavenly minded are in fact any earthly good at all. In God's goodness to my dad, he became heavenly minded before he died. 
How do we respond? How do we respond when we're stressed, overwhelmed, when people are coming perhaps against our faith, when we're waffling about whether to build our house on God's word or not, build our lives on God's word or not? Let's look at how Hezekiah responded. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Let me encourage you to underline those words. I'm picturing him taking the scroll and spreading it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord Almighty, that's Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, God of heaven's armies. Context matters. There's an army saying, I'm going to overrun this city. And he says, Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words of Sennacherib. All the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule you, the living God. It's true. I love this part of the, uh, the prayer. It's a prayer. It's true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these people and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood or stone. They were idols fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are Lord, that you, Lord, are, are the only God. How did Hezekiah respond to being overwhelmed? How did Hezekiah respond when a voice came at him, and a not-so-subtle voice, don't trust Yahweh, don't trust the word of the Lord, don't trust God's prophet Isaiah and what he has to say? How do we respond when voices, whether explicit or implied, say, don't trust Scripture? Hezekiah prayed. He took the overwhelming situation to God. He took the threat to God. And it's a beautiful prayer, as he admits that much of what Sennacherib had to say was actually true, at least to some degrees. The Assyrians had, in fact, destroyed all those nations. Do you know that we are to be brutally honest with the Lord in prayer? Which is to say we're not to pretend. We're not to pretend as though things aren't bad. We're praying because we need his help. <laughs> we need his intervention. Hezekiah says in verse 18, It's true, Lord, that what the enemy, the Assyrian kings, what Sennacherib says, the enemy says, the Assyrian kings have in fact destroyed all these peoples and their lands. If, we're, if we tell the truth nowhere else in life, if you tell the truth nowhere else in life, Tell the truth in prayer. Don't let your prayer life be a place of pretending. After all, you know, it's true. Cancer is a killer. I had the privilege of praying with two folks that have cancer this morning already. 
That's why we're taking it to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's true that cancer is a killer. Protect me. Provide for me. That's why we pray about it. Cancer does take lives. And it's true, Lord, that I'm at odds with my family member and and they've said mean things about me, or I've said mean things about them. Help and reconciliation. It's true, Lord, family and friendships, they're difficult. Would you help me? Would you intervene? It's true, Lord. There are situations outside our control. That's why we pray. It's true, Lord. We have an enemy who looks to devour and is undermining our joy in life. That's why I'm here. Let's tell the truth about what we're facing and let's, let's spread it out before the Lord. Let's take it to the Lord. I love the picture. Can you picture Hezekiah spreading it out in the temple? Frankly, the scroll, this letter from Sennacherib, probably had a signet ring stamped in wax over the seal that that Hezekiah had to break, and then he unrolls it, just like the signet ring I showed a little earlier of Hezekiah. The wax, the the clay would have been pressed into wax and then sealed the document. He spreads it out. Give ear, Lord, hear, open your eyes. Listen to all these words. Oh, that we would spread out before the Lord those things that are threatening us and discouraging us and overwhelming us and terrifying us. The email you received from your boss, spread it out before the Lord. Do you see this, Lord? The text message you received from a friend, spread it out before the Lord. Lord, do you see what they're, hear what they're saying to me? The my chart message that you opened from your doctor, spread it out before the Lord. Give ear, Lord. Open your eyes, Lord. Listen, see. We don't spread things out before the Lord. We don't pray be, because he doesn't know. We're not bringing him information he's not privy to. Jesus taught us that God knows what we need before we even ask him. So why spread things out before the Lord? Why take them to the Lord in prayer? Because God's told us to. God has ordained prayer as a primary means to accomplishing his redemptive purposes in the world. God has ordained prayer as a primary means to accomplishing his redemptive purposes in the world. Prayer, in in short, prayer is God's idea. And by his design, we can participate in his good work in our lives and in our children's lives and in our family, friends, neighbors, our community by praying. Is God powerless until we pray? No. No. We are powerless unless we pray. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. We are powerless unless we pray. Our prayerlessness doesn't limit God. It limits our access to and experience of God. Is prayer all that we do? Absolutely not. 
It's not the sole means of his working out his redemptive purposes in the world. It's a primary means. I'd go so far, but it feels like overstatement. I'd say it is the primary means, but I'll suffice to say it's a primary means. It's the first thing we should do. It's the thing we should do in the middle. It's the last thing we should do when we're facing, well, whatever we're facing. You know, in a group this size, several have come. I bet half the room is seeking the Lord on his will. What's your will on this issue? That Where should I move? What job should I take? How do I reconcile on this issue? What about this doctor's report? Should I, I, I've been you know, praying for the last several months about my left knee. Lord, would you heal it or should I have surgery? In a room this size, about half of us are seeking the Lord's will on a matter. The Lord's will is on the screen. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in every circumstance. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Is that all there is to the will of God? No. But this we're sure of. There's no reason to be immobile as a person of faith. We can accomplish through the will of the Lord to some degree If you're rejoicing always, if you're praying constantly, if you're giving thanks in every circumstance, you are a part of God's will for your life to some degree. Well, prayer, the good news is that prayer receives answers. Here's God's answer to Hezekiah. It's verse 21. Then Isaiah, son of Amoz, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you have prayed. I'd underline that. Prayer matters. Prayer changes things. God works through prayer. Little prayer, little experience of God. Much prayer, much power. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken against him. You prayed and God spoke this word against him, and, and I've, I've jumped ahead. There's this long um, commentary on all that God's going to do against Sennacherib. I'm going to skip to verse 33. It's on the screen. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. So Isaiah ends up restating. Sennacherib's not going to enter this city. He said it once. Then Sennacherib writes this letter, and now he's here saying it again. He will not enter the city or shoot an arrow here. He'll not come before it with the shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he's going to go home. He'll return. He'll not enter the city, declares the Lord. I'll defend this city. I'll save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, killed him with the sword. His own boys took his life. And they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Ezra Haddon, his son, succeeded him as king. Why or how did God deliver his people? 
Let's start with why. Because Hezekiah prayed. What moved the hand of God? Hezekiah's prayer. There's no two ways around it. Isaiah's message to Hezekiah, verse 21, chapter 37, because you have prayed. You have prayed. Make no mistake, people of God, prayer matters. God has ordained prayer as a primary means to accomplishing his redemptive purposes in the world. Because you've prayed. Because you've prayed, 185,000 enemy soldiers, enemies of the people of God, lie dead on the plains of Judah. Think of it. Think of it. Does prayer win battles? Yes. The strongest king in the world at that time, Sennacherib, packed his bags and went home after suffering the loss of 185,000 soldiers. Now, if the death of 185,000 Assyrian soldiers by the angel of the Lord concerns you, if it gives you pause, makes you question, how is God so intimately involved in human affairs, make sure you turn into the, tune into the Next Level podcast. I'm sure it'll be at the core of what's asked or uh, a, a focal points of some of the questions submitted. Suffice it to say, for now, on this topic, that Sennacherib had said, do not trust the word of God to you. Your God will not deliver you. And I, I see the move of the angel of the Lord in direct response to Sennacherib's words. I would draw the conclusion that leadership matters. Careful, careful, right, what we say about who God is and what he's up to. It can impact our families and our communities and our nations. Sennacherib had spoken against Yahweh, and Yahweh demonstrated his power. Your God will not deliver you, was Sennacherib's word. And in fact, God acted. God moved. So how can we respond faithfully, faith-filled, to this story, God's work in Hezekiah's life and in Judah's reign? What's our faith-filled response to this story? In the lowest hanging fruit, the most obvious point of application is to pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we know that you've ordained prayer to accomplish your purposes. Prayer was not our, our idea. And frankly, Father, I'll begin by confessing prayerlessness. Prayerlessness um, of myself, my family, the church I serve. Father, have mercy on us and show grace towards us despite our prayerlessness. Forgive us. And just as your son's disciples ask Jesus, teach us to pray. Not simply what to say, but how to listen to what the Spirit is saying to us in response to our prayers. We thank you that you answer prayer. 
that you've invited us boldly to come before your throne and that you, you meet us there and speak to us. Father, would you not only teach us what to say, how to pray, I think of the temptation to pretend in prayer. Father, teach us how to, to be honest in prayer, brutally honest about what we're feeling and fearing and thinking and what we long for. And Father, I also want to ask that you would um, that you'd care for us in those prayers we've been praying for many, many years, what feel like to us as unanswered prayer. Based on your word, we know that you, you never leave us or forsake us. And we know that you answer prayer. But there are some requests for which we've been praying for many, many years, Lord. I think the, the request for revival in America. Would you move in power? And we've seen elements of revival on college campuses over the last few, year, last few months at the, in the last semester. Father, we thank you for that. We pray revival would spread, it would start among your people, and then it would result in the conversion of many to trust in Christ. Father, I think of the, um, the, the man who brought his son, who was demon-possessed, and he said, help my unbelief. Would you help our unbelief? Would you build in us a heart for prayer? Let's start there, Father. Some of us don't have an appetite or interest in praying. Our prayers are worn out and they feel like they're bouncing off the ceiling. Would you help our unbelief? Would you create in us an appetite for communion with you? In Jesus' name, amen.